we badly, badly need the money. We're running on absolute fumes. So we said we'll do this giant conference call with all the accountants and lawyers and partners from Highland Capital and all that. And then we'll close the deal and they wired the money and we badly, badly need the money. We get on the call, a three-hour call. And at that exact moment, for the one time during that month, my whole team needs to do their shooting practice around me. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, co-founder and CEO of OutBrain, Yaron Galai. Yaron is an inventor, a tech entrepreneur, sure, but tech is just an outflow from his drive to create. From Ed Forever to Quigo to his current company, OutBrain, Yaron has been fundamental in the ad tech space, which is the economic backbone of the internet. The thing is, he's only really been inventing one thing all along. So what I learned from our conversation is how much you can accomplish if you dive deep into one thing, one thing only, one thing that you're really passionate about. We began our conversation talking about Yaron's military service. While most Israelis served three years, Yaron served seven as he climbed his way up the officer ranks. Yet the beginning of his service looked nothing like success. What got you interested in going to the Navy? Nothing at all. Absolutely nothing at all. It was a mistake, half joke. I started my uh, service in the Air Force. The, the Air Force made a change, closed our course and uh, yeah, dispersed us. I had to start in the Navy and I could go there for a day and just decline it and then go to what I wanted to do, which was tanks. I went to the day in the Navy. I said it's going to be an hour or two, maybe 24 hours. And uh, the joke went on for about seven years. So oh, wow. I stuck there. What were some of the hardships, uh, the challenges that you faced as a soldier and, and an officer in the Navy? Usually officers in the IDF are the ones that are most qualified at their job. They advance to do the officer's course. And the Navy is a little different where... You start with the officer's course. When you reach the ship, you're actually the least qualified of your whole crew. So I was the weapons officer on a battleship. So I had people that knew how to shoot missiles and torpedoes. And I don't know that I could shoot a missile myself, but my soldiers had to do it and do it the best way possible. It's trying to lead or manage a crew where each person in the crew is much more professional and qualified than myself. And I think in building a startup, that's amazingly important. My CFO is, I will never be as uh, good as she is in finance. And my CTO is incredible in technology. A ship is like a startup where there's no one helping you out behind the scenes. Cool. So you left the army and you went to study at HIT, Hulon Institute of Technology. Why did you choose that I liked inventing, so uh, I can always remember myself kind of drawing uh, little inventions and hoping uh, there's uh, such a thing as being an inventor. Design, to me, seemed like maybe the closest to being an inventor, so that's why I went and studied that. Was there a moment that you recall that you said, oh, I'm probably going to be involved in technology or become an entrepreneur? No, not really. I think uh, I sort of found myself uh, doing that. But uh, I studied product design. I never graduated. So I did graduate high school. I have a high school diploma, which I'm very proud of. You didn't graduate. What was the I, story there? So in my defense, I did not drop out. I stayed. I was registered. Let's call it that <laughs> through the bitter end. Uh, but they decided not to graduate me. While studying, I started designing websites. The Internet was uh, just starting and the company was pretty much myself. 
I thought it was a graphical design challenge, but it turned out to be, you know, you need to know how to write HTML. So I taught myself HTML, then the website needs to be somewhere. So I taught myself how to build web servers and ended up just doing all that and built uh, probably about 40 of the first websites in Israel. In the late 90s, you started your first startup in the edtech space, which was just beginning. What got you interested in that field? So the field was not ad tech. When we started that company, it was a messaging platform for ISPs, for internet providers, where they could provide messaging uh, like uh, weather tickers or stock tickers or things like that within your browser. It very quickly evolved into advertising and probably one of the most annoying forms of advertising, which is when I decided to leave that company and start my next one. And I think the invention or the first patent is probably under my name. We did invent uh, the kind of floating ads, the ones that where you need to find the X. Uh, with uh, the pop-ups. So not, no. not the pop-ups, not the okay. pop-ups, but uh, the ones that are within the same page, just floating over and you need to find oh the exit. Yes. So oh my goodness. You're to be blamed for that? I apologized. I oh, apologized wow. in advance. That's tough. But this company ended up being sold? Yes. Through an acquisition of an acquisition of an acquisition, it ended up being part of Microsoft's ad technology. And I think it's one of the first rich media advertising technologies. And, you know, we pioneered that space, so to speak, although I do apologize apologize for it. And, so we, uh, we can blame Microsoft for that. Yeah, and I think it's still part of Microsoft's uh, ad technology stack. So soon after, you founded Quigo, which invented some of the fundamentals of contextual advertising and became the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. What was the idea there? How did you get involved with that? I'll tell you maybe a, a story that'll tie all the companies together because I do have one investor, a great friend that invested in all my companies. His name is Ziv uh, Kopp. A few years ago, he sent me an email where the title of the email was, you're the most boring person I know. I said, wow, <laughs> that's from a friend and investor. <laughs> What's that about? And he said he found the earliest business plans I wrote for Quigo and the company before that. And he said he just then realized that I've only been trying to do one company throughout my career, which is uh, very simple. What's next for me? What's the best next use of my time? I love reading. I love in a magazine that's great that I subscribe to. I just love that feeling of uh, flipping over to the next story and getting a wonderful story. The editor doesn't know me. I didn't ask for anything. And the next story is great. I've always been trying to recreate that magic on the web. And so with uh, Quigo, that was the original idea. Let's try to understand what each person is reading or what they're looking at and fill up that forward button with uh, the what's next. Here's what we recommend next for you on this browser based on uh, what you mm. seem to be interested. In. And that's how the product was launched, or so did it change? I, uh, well, it changed. Since? It changed. Every company pivots. I, I assume that because I don't remember ever hitting the forward button. So uh... that's right. So every I think company, with the exception of a few lottery ticket winners like uh, maybe YouTube and Instagram, every company pivots. You started Quigo around the dot-com bubble crash, and I know that it took you quite a few years to raise your Series A. What was it like during this dry spell? It was hell. I think we started it with uh, perfect timing. Uh, if I recall correctly, we incorporated Quigo on April 22nd, 2000. The Alan Greenspan uh, speech or something that started the bursting of the bubble was like April 21st. We were seeing VCs that just two, three weeks ago were making big investments in companies in our space. They told us, guys, the internet is over. It's done. <laughs> There's no internet, you clowns. 
for four years, we were not able to raise uh, a single penny from institutional investors. We had a few times we ran out of money during those years. We ended that period with a deal. We got a first real business deal with Yahoo. That deal was uh, the first one that was starting to be interesting for VCs. And VCs also, after four years of telling us the internet was a 1999 thing, in 2003, they started saying, okay, maybe internet will be a thing. I thought of funding as a financial process. And I think what I did not understand at Quigo was it's actually a storytelling process. The investors are really trying to see, is this a story that we buy into? Are we fearful of missing this story? Now, just like any good story, I think the focus really matters. And that, I think, was the next big challenge for us at Quigo was staying focused on doing one thing and doing it better than anyone else in the world. Cool. And did you uh, stay in Israel or did you have to move to the U.S.? Ooh, I have a story for you there. Until your 40s, I think you do one month a year in reserve service. We got the deal with Yahoo. We got Highland Capital, which was uh, very interested, gave us a term sheet for a $6 million investment. And we get to the last week before the closing, and we badly, badly need the money. We're running on absolute fumes. And then my reserve service starts. Of all places in Israel at the time, we had two little Navy stations in the middle of Gaza Strip. I'm called there for a month. So I say, okay, what do I do? How do I get this deal done with Highland Capital in Boston? They've never been to Israel. And I decided, you know what? Too much information. I'll just rent a cell phone. This is pre-having a cell phone. Do all the end of the negotiations from Gaza Strip. And they don't need to know anything. You know, they'll think I'm in the office. It's, it's all good. It's a very quiet, nice place on the beach. And for a week, it's working amazingly well. We get to the last day and we decide uh, we have all these little items we need for the closing. So we decide we'll do this giant conference call with all the accountants and lawyers and partners from Highland Capital and all that. And then we'll close the deal and they wired the money and we badly, badly need the money. We get on the call, a three-hour call. And at that exact moment, for the one time during that month, my whole team needs to do their shooting practice around me. Now, this is shooting a lot, but it's shooting at, at either our targets or shooting blanks. It's just noisy. There's nothing other than noise. And I cannot mute because I'm the one negotiating on our side. So the shooting starts and the lead partner at Highland Capital starts screaming at his lawyer, thinking he's playing a PlayStation at his home in Boston. And I was saying, Bob, Bob, no, it's, let me explain the situation. I'm not in the office in Tel Aviv. I'm in Gaza, but it's friendly fire. It's all good. Let's keep going with the call and convince him to keep going with the call. We did it for three hours with shooting on and off. We got through everything, agreed on the whole contract. And then this Bob from Highland Capital says, uh, I need five minutes on mute with my partners comes back from the mute and says, okay, we're walking away from the deal. Term sheet is not binding. We cannot have founders in a war zone. We're walking away from the deal. And I start begging for my company's life because I need to shut it down tomorrow from Gaza. And after begging and begging and begging, he says, okay, give me another five minutes and comes back and says, okay, I spoke to the partners. We are willing to go ahead and close the deal now. If we add one condition to the deal, I asked him, what is it? And he said that within 45 days, you and Oded, my co-founder, are residents of the U.S. And if not, on day 45, we get 100% of your shares in the company. So we 
get the entire company <laughs> oh, for the investment. Wow. And I said, put it in. I, I have no choice. Put it in. Out of those 45 days, I was still stuck for 20-something days in Gaza. So I had an interesting call with my wife, Tali, and uh, told her we're probably losing the company next month. And she said, you absolutely are losing the company because I am not <laughs> moving uh, under gunfire, literally, to the U.S. Yada, yada, yada. Day 45, we were living in Tribeca. So the company ended up uh, being sold to AOL for almost $400 million dollars. How did you feel at the moment of signing that agreement? It's bittersweet. I mean, it's sweet because it was a great deal. On the other hand, it's uh, giving away a baby and seeing someone else manage it the way they think they should. I'll tell you an interesting story about the sale, maybe. In the first four years, we raised capital from a bunch of, I'd say, non-traditional kind of sources of capital. We had, in two different occasions, parents of our employees tell us, okay, if you're not able to make payroll for my son or daughter, maybe I'll invest in your company so that you can make payroll. It was very weird. And we had from Afula in Israel, a family plumbing company that made an investment. I'm not even sure what exactly it's called. Afula, for those of you who are not familiar, is the north of Israel. I actually grew up 10 minutes from Afula in Kfar Tavo, so uh, <laughs> it's a very small town. And I cannot remember how we got to this family in the plumbing business, but we did. And they invested, as far as I recall, about $16,000. It's a weird number, but it was payroll. So it was basically, I did a whole round so I could kick the ball down the road for another month. Anyway, the six or seven years passed uh, from the time they made the investment. We said each one of us will call the investors that we brought along and uh, tell them the great news. You know, you, you're getting a great return. I think this is going to be the best call of my life. If I recall the numbers correctly, they invested $16,000 and they were going to make two and a half million back. Wow. Yes, which is quite a nice call. I finally reach one of the two brothers and I start the call and it becomes one of the worst calls ever. <laughs> worst calls. And it takes me 10 minutes to understand until I realize he thinks it's like one of those uh, Nigerian print scams of, uh, you know, I have two and a half million dollars. I just need to wire to you. I'll need the uh, your bank account and all that. When we took the $16,000 investment, I thought, like, I'm taking all the money off the family's place. That, you know, they're not going to have grocery money for the next few years, and I better return it. It turned out they forgot about the investment. They parked it with their accountant or something, and he was convinced that this call is a scam. And uh, after a couple of weeks, uh, it was the front page on the business section of saying the plumbing company, Chasson Plumbing, is the only <laughs> institutional investor making a huge uh, return here on the Quigo investment. I'd like us to pause at this point because, let's be honest, after acquisition of Quigo and everything you did before that, you could actually retire at that point. What was your, going on, on on your mind? Like, why not retire, invest in other entrepreneurs, maybe put some effort or time in social impact uh, initiatives? I feel like I'm doing my hobby. I think you retire from the stuff if you're not enjoying and want to keep doing the hobby for as long as you have the passion for the hobby. As I said before, I've always been trying to do one company, which is to make a great recommendation for myself about what to read next. I think between the time we started this podcast and now, probably a fantastic piece of content that might be life-changing for one of us has been published. And there's a good chance we'll never, ever know about it. But when we sold Quigo, we had a product I liked a lot. But when I looked at the end result of it and compared it to my vision for what I'm trying to solve for myself, you know, we were doing great contextual advertising. It wasn't recommendations I would look at and say, here's a recommendation for myself to read. This is a very egoistic career in trying to build these companies. 
And so I just had that itch. I needed to scratch it, and I decided to take another stab at it. So what was exactly the idea? What was missing in the market? What were you trying to solve with Outbrain? In building a very successful advertising uh, company, I realized that there's just this fundamental, I think, misunderstanding or kind of flaw in the thesis of the entire market. Advertising is usually based on the price the advertiser is willing to pay. The higher the price, the more likely you are going to see the ad. And to me as a user, I knew the one thing I just don't care about is the price of ads. Yet here you are really creating my whole advertising experience based on price. And so my contrarian idea with Outbrain was let's make a recommendation engine. And the advertising piece, instead of being sorted by price, it'll be sorted by what's most likely to be interesting for each person. You provide this essential service for publishers, ad revenue. And I think one of the... critics in the industry that uh, there's either low content, clickbait, or even fake news. How did you guys deal with this criticism? Yeah. So today we're a hugely critical piece of uh, publishing. We generate about a billion dollars in revenue every year, and uh, we've generated for our partners over $3 billion in revenue. So I think a lot of journalism and publishing has been sustained, which otherwise might have gone out of business if it weren't for Outbrain. You know, in terms of our philosophy of uh, what goes in, what's acceptable and not acceptable, you mentioned two areas, which for me are very different. So there's the red line of fake news and things that are designed to be fake and manipulative. And those we've always uh, had a very strong stance against them. I think Outbrain was the first company in the world to coin the term fake news, or I think we called it fake content at the time. This is probably six or seven years before it became obvious as a problem on Facebook. And we disallow any of that. Fake news, even though there's a short-term kind of financial gain to be had, it's against our philosophy. It's just not why we started the entire company. Clickbait or quality, I think, is very uh, subjective. If you look at the TV consumption, I'm not very strong with TV, but some of the high-quality, high-brow, you know, a documentary on PBS. But really, when many of us watch TV, you do have a lot of uh, just sitting and watching reality. And we try to be non-judgmental about the quality of things that people choose to engage with. So there's the red line of the things that should not exist, and there's the things that are subjective uh, quality. And a lot of it, by the way, is up to uh, the publishers that we work with. They can decide the type of experience they want on their pages and their apps. About six or seven years before the famous elections with fake news and all that, our account manager at the time, Kate, who was compensated on the amount of advertisers spent with us, came to me and said, you know, there's this one or two advertisers uh, with us that are publishers. They're newspapers. So if you look at them at their websites, they're local newspapers. And something's fishy about the stories they're publishing and that they're promoting with us. If it's okay, I want to look into this. And I said, sure. And so Kate took the next two weeks and we did a very interesting investigation there and realized that they look like local newspapers, but they're actually fake news. turned out that seven of our top 20 advertisers were that, were fake news. And when we realized that at the end of uh, Kate's investigation, we decided uh, to fire them all. It turned out that within a day, that cut our entire business by about a quarter. So 25% of the business gone within a day. It was an interesting board uh, discussion, but uh, the board was very supportive. And we also decided to be very public about it so that other companies uh, don't fall for it. Obviously, we were the only ones, I think, for the next six or seven years that blocked fake news or fake content, as we called it at the time. But I was extremely proud of Kate and what she did there because it hurt her bottom line, but she did what she knew was uh, right for Outbrain to do. 
a few years ago, the company added David Kostman as the co-CEO. How did it feel to you as a co-founder to add another co-CEO? Well, I fought hard to make it happen, so I felt great. David Kostman, he's been on the Outbrain board for about eight years now. So we had a long time to work together and build trust together. And operating the company together has been a pleasure. We have, I'd say, the 80-20 of uh, the 80% of uh, what each one of us does well, which is he does more of the operations and the day-to-day business. I do more of the looking forward, designing the product of the future, the vision part, I guess. And we have the 20 that overlaps on uh, things we're both good and passionate about. We looked, by the way, at a lot of companies you wouldn't think of but had a similar structure during the years they really scaled. Google is a good example. Not many people think of it, but they were running the company as three CEOs. They called it the triumvirate. So Eric Schmidt was more on the execution, and Larry and Sergey were on product and technology. Whole Foods, until its acquisition by Amazon, was co-CEOs. Netflix now is co-CEOs. So you, you have more than you realize. It's actually a pretty good structure. So... The company went public. As you mentioned, like you like inventing things and creating and running a publicly traded company is very different than that. Uh, Why? No. <laughs> no? Not at all. I, I don't view it that way at all. I think if you look at some of the best and most exciting products and inventions that are coming out of companies like Apple and Amazon and Google, those happened as public companies, not when they were private. If you look at where Apple was as a private company and what were their biggest inventions to that date, I think it'll look funny in hindsight. The exact opposite is actually true because the going public gives us uh, more resources and currency to keep inventing. Cool. So just to close our conversation, Holon Institute of Technology. Did they actually reach out to you many years later asking you to take their diploma? Or? Let me tell you an interesting story <laughs> about that. So first of all, I got a call from them uh, the day I sold my previous company. They said they really want to keep in touch with their alumni, with their graduates. And I said, I think that might be a, a wrong phone number because I don't think you graduated me. But the, the better story is we just um, went public. You know, when you draft the S1 for the SEC, you need to make sure that every word there is true and consistent and all that. And one of the parts in the S1 is the biography. And the lawyers told me every word in the biography has to be truthful. And I've been very truthful throughout my career about I do not have an academic degree. And the bio I submitted reflected that. A few weeks after we submit the draft, we get a call from, I think it was the SEC lawyers. And they told me, okay, there's a problem with that section. We need to talk. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Did I make any mistakes there? We get on the call and they say, okay, we have a problem of an inconsistency in your bio, but it's the weirdest thing. We've never had this kind of inconsistency because you said you do not have an academic degree, but we checked with uh, the university and they list you on the alumni page as, <laughs> <laughs> as alumni. I had to convince them, believe me, the university is lying in this case. I am saying the truth. I do not have a degree. A few quick questions that we ask all of our interviewees. What are you currently obsessed with? Ooh, I have this one obsession which is driving me nuts, but it's totally random. When you sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, how to prove it that you sequestered it, the amount of CO2 that you sequestered, and how to sell it only once. Proof of sequestration. Wow, that's random. <laughs> I told you. What are you most optimistic about? 
I think humanity has generally shown us how resilient it is and how creative and entrepreneurial it is in solving problems. And so going back to this thing I'm obsessed with, obviously climate change is a thing to be very pessimistic about, and I am, but I'm at the same time very optimistic about humanity figuring it out and having random people that do content recommendations think about how to prove sequestration of CO2. I think so much creativity and entrepreneurial spirit is going to come out, and uh, I'm very optimistic about that. What's a piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? I think focus is always uh, a good uh, piece of advice. I've seen it over the years where entrepreneurs understand the need for focus and are amazing at it on other people's startups and not on their own, myself included. And I think that being very disciplined about it, having a very clear and concise story of uh, the one thing that we're the best at, I wish someone would have given me that advice early on. Yaron, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Gabe. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening and Litraot. See you next time.